Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Just imagine singing that song, and maybe it is this way this evening that someone is sitting next to you tonight who is wondering about whether or not the Bible really is a light unto our path or why it should be a light unto our path. You know, sometimes there's just nothing like sitting next to a non-Christian in a Bible study or a non-Christian um, in a worship service where you realize that this is something that's very new for them. And again, I realize we may have one or more visitors here tonight, and, and uh, I'm so thankful that you are here. Uh, you know, just imagine going to school on Monday or going to work Monday. Maybe you work on weekends. Maybe you're working tomorrow, and someone uh, sees you reading a Bible. You know, it's not something that we see enough in this day and time. You know what I mean? You know, I travel quite a bit, and, and I had my Bible with me on the plane today, and, and uh, I, I don't do it for show or anything like that, uh, but I, I, I do, the more I look around, the more I see, it seems, and have for the last 20 or 30 years, seen fewer and fewer people reading the Bible. So if you are reading your Bible, let's say at work, or maybe it's at not during work hours, maybe it's at lunchtime or break time, or maybe it's at uh, school when you've already completed your work, someone is likely going to be asking you at some point in time, well, what, you know, why, why are you reading the Bible? You know, we live in a day and time where one out of every five to one out of every four Americans claims no religion. That's grown substantially over the last few decades. There was just a poll that came out uh, less than two months ago, or right at about two months ago, that indicated that we have more Americans now who claim that the Bible is a book of fables. This came from the, the Gallup organization, a book of fables and myths. There are more individuals in this country who believe that than believe that it is actually the Word of God. So if someone comes up to you and asks you, well, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? You know, you might begin with the fact that well, you believe that there is a God, that God does exist, because this person might not believe that. And of course, it's, it would be illogical, right, to believe that the Bible is the Word of God if God does not exist. So tonight's lesson is not on the existence of God, but let's make sure that we're on the same, you know, uh, uh, we're on the same page there with our friends. Well, do you believe in God or not? Maybe we want to talk about that subject matter. But if you already believe that there is a God, and maybe this person does too based upon the evidence, then you could rationally conclude that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, He would certainly have the power to be able to communicate to man, and He would have the free will to do so. And if He had the free will to do so, and He wanted humankind to know anything, then He would have done so. Right? Especially if he wanted humankind to not just know something, but respond in some way, to actually do something. And if Almighty God chose freely to do that, you know what would make perfect sense is that he would indicate that it was from him, right? 
I mean, otherwise, I mean, just think about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. Did it make sense for Him to tell people that He came from heaven? Did it make sense to tell people that He was the Son of God, that He was the long-awaited Messiah? Or should He have not said that ever and just left it up to guesswork? You see, there were still people who denied Him. There were still people who disbelieved in Him. But the point is, if God truly revealed communication from heaven to man then He would reveal that it was from Him. That just is logical. That just makes sense. Well, you know what you will read literally thousands of times? I'm currently reading through and listening through the book of Jeremiah right now. And you know what you're going to read? In fact, you could probably just open up to just about any page in Jeremiah and you're going to read... I just opened up to Jeremiah chapter 10. I don't recommend Bible study like that, okay? Don't just open... But I'm just saying... There there are hundreds of times, if I remember correctly, just in the book of Jeremiah where he says, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you. That's a claim of inspiration. You know what I've never done in all seriousness, and I doubt I've ever joked about it, at least I hope not, that the Lord just spoke to me and now I'm revealing what the Lord just communicated me to you because that's not how the Lord communicates today in the 21st century and the Lord has never communicated to me directly in that sense like He did to Jeremiah and others hundreds of years ago. At least that is what they claimed. And they claimed it literally hundreds and hundreds, thousands of times. Of course, you have those more memorable, you might say, statements like in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God so there is a a claim of it being God breathed or as Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 that knowing this that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or you might have a translation that says private origin For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by or borne along by the Holy Spirit. Again, that's a claim. And if the Bible is the Word of God, if God ever did communicate anything to man, it makes sense that He would have revealed that it was from Him. But it would also make sense, not that He would just say it was from Him, but that He would prove it, right? Again, let's just go back to Jesus for just a moment. When Jesus came to this earth, and I know you may be sitting there, Eric, well, you're you're assuming that the Bible is inspired and the Bible is reliable, and I hope that I thought that's what this entire weekend was about. Yes, for the sake of this illustration, I am. I'm just saying, when the Bible reveals when Jesus came to earth, he not only said that he was the Messiah, right? John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he revealed to himself, to her as the Messiah, when the great high, excuse me, not the great high priest, when the high priest there in, um, in the gospel of Mark said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. I am the Mashiach. I am the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. That's what Jesus revealed to man, but he didn't merely say it. He offered evidence for that. That is, if Jesus, if all Jesus ever did was say that he was the Son of God, he said himself that we should not believe him. In John chapter 10, he said this about himself and the miracles that he worked. He said, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. In like manner, I would suggest to you that if the Bible If there is not evidence for its supernatural origin, then people should not come to believe that 
that the Bible really is the Word of God because simply, simply because it says it is the Word of God doesn't make it so. Any more than me telling you that I am the best basketball player on the planet, I'm a combination of LeBron James and Michael Jordan, that simply doesn't make it so. Simply because I say that I'm the fastest man alive or that I am the President of the United States of America, I could say it a thousand times and it just doesn't make it so. The proof, the proof is in the pudding, you might say. So tonight's lesson is really a one to kind of get us started for the weekend, and uh, then we're going to uh, deal with a number of things that, that I believe will, will help us better understand the importance of this first lesson tonight. One reason to believe that the Bible is from God. The one, in, in my judgment, I would contend the one all-encompassing, overarching reason to believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because to err is human, but the Bible writers got everything correct. They were right about everything. And, and that this is the lesson for the night. This isn't the only slide I have for tonight, but it's the, this is the, if you don't remember anything else, I mean, this is it. This is the thesis. This is the lesson. This is what we are trying to get across. To err is human. I don't really have to say much about that, do I? Would, would any, uh, any husbands in here like to raise their hand and, and uh, testify that they uh, do not err? I've never seen that happen in, a, in a, an assembly like this before. Normally what I see are, are some you know, elbows or some looks or something like that. You know, I'm not going to suggest that I am a perfect man because my wife is here with me tonight. <laughs> You know, I have to say, my wife does not like me to mention her in lessons. Normally I do it when she's not here. But I will say that I got a nice surprise today. I was in the Atlanta airport and Jana asked me, she said, what hotel are you staying in this week? And I said, I don't remember. She said, what time does it start tonight? I said, I don't remember. I didn't have it right there at my fingertips. I figured it was at 6 or 7. I mean, that's normally usually things start around that time. And and uh, I, I said, she said, how did you know I was at work today? Talking, she was at Apologetic Express today, uh, helping out there. And I said, well, honey, I'm tracking you right here on Life 360. I, I can see you're, you're at work. And I could tell some irritation in her voice, like she did not want me knowing something. And then what I didn't know is she was coming to uh, hang out with me some this weekend. Not, not, not the whole weekend, I, unless I can talk her into it, but at least part of it. So she surprised me. But you know what? What would not be a surprise is if I confess to you that I err frequently at our house or at work. You know, it's the, Eric, don't forget the milk and bread and eggs on your way home, and Eric will probably forget that about 25% of the time, sadly. That's just, I just wish it wasn't the case, but that's kind of how that happens. Uh, I, I can tell you about emails that I write where, I, I, do you all ever seen, you know, I, uh, I know that there's some things like an, an article or a book or maybe a something that uh, you, you know you put out on the sign outside. You want to have those things right. Emails are one of those things I write kind of quickly. And you know what I do a lot is I make some mistakes in those things. Like a few years ago I was writing one to 200 and so people who were involved in the Apologetics Press Camp. And it, the, the heading of the email was, if you are no longer coming to camp, dot, dot, dot because we had uh, people on a waiting list. And 
and I spelled no, K-N-O-W. If you, if you are no longer, do you no longer? I, I, or, or, no longer coming to camp. And I, someone was chuckling in the office when they got the email. I could hear them from my office when they got the email. I got home from work that night. My wife was looking at me in kind of a funny, different kind of look than is normal. And I was like, did you read that email too? She said, yes, yeah, I, I read. You know, um, I understand why public speaking is, is somewhat scary to a lot of people because we, we don't like making mistakes. They're not fun to make, especially, I mean, it's one thing if we're making it and we're by ourselves, and even then it's not the funnest, but then you make a mistake in front of hundreds of people. But young people and young men don't allow that to keep you from being preachers because here's the thing, when I make mistakes, I just tell people, well, that's just proof I'm not an inspired apostle or prophet. So let's just move on from there because... To err is human, but the Bible writers, when they were writing, when they were speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they got it right. To err is human, but the Bible writers were... Think about the the past, everything they wrote about the past. Decades earlier, hundreds of years earlier, in some cases thousands of years earlier, everywhere, wherever checkable, every fact is always correct. Historians... Are they always correct about everything? Listen, we, you can read a biography about George Washington written by two or three different people, and you'll, you'll be thinking two or three totally different things about George Washington, and you're wondering, well, which one of these biographies you know, is, is correct? To err is human, but the Bible writers got not only the past right, the day and time in which they lived, which was very tumultuous, and you had leaders rising and falling, and nations rising and falling, and, and, and cities uh, you know, being destroyed and rising up, and yet anywhere and everywhere where their statements are checkable, they're always correct. That's not n- normal. To err is human. But the Bible writers got it right even and most astoundingly and especially even when they were writing about the future. You say, well, when when did they write about the future? Well, you realize that much of the Old Testament, I'm not saying like percentage-wise many of the, the words themselves are about the future, but I'm saying the theme of the Old Testament was the Messiah not has come, or is here, but was coming. And throughout the Old Testament, you have pictures and prophecies and promises of the coming Messiah, that He is coming. That's the theme of the Old Testament. The theme of the Old Testament is really, it's about the future. It's about what is to come. Sin is a problem. It's been a problem since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and they fell. And who is going to answer this problem of death? Who's going to save us from man's scary foe, you might say? Who's going to to grant us eternal life? How can a holy and just and righteous God who is going to hold accountable individuals who have sin in their lives that He cannot fellowship because of His holiness, He is a pure rise and to behold evil? There was one that God said from the very beginning that He knew in His eternal mind who would come to take care of the sin problem. And so what we have throughout the Old Testament are hundreds and hundreds of pictures, word pictures, of statements, of promises of the coming Messiah. And and it's not like, you know, if if you're telling a story that's not true, 
And I don't recommend that, by the way, because the Bible calls that lying, and that's not something God wants us, God's never wanted us to be about that. But if you, if you know of people who are, who are making up things and telling stories, are, are they going to tell you very specific facts that you can check? But what you have throughout the Old Testament are very specifics. I mean, the, the Messiah is coming and He's going to be a seed of Abraham, not one of His brothers that's listed there in Genesis chapter 11. He's going to be of Abraham's son Isaac, not Ishmael and not one of the other sons of Abraham listed in Genesis chapter 25. And I don't have those names memorized. You can look that up for yourselves. But it, was, it wasn't one of those sons. It was Isaac and his son Jacob, not Esau, but it was Jacob. And the Messiah was going to come not through Jacob, or through Jacob, but, but one of Jacob's sons, not, not, it wasn't Reuben, it wasn't going to be Simeon, it wasn't even Levi. Levi, father of the Levites, right? It wasn't even Benjamin, or Joseph, or Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. There was one Judah. Judah, the one that that in the book of Genesis, you can read where he, he did some ornery things. He wasn't, he wasn't always, you know, the one that you would think of as, oh, this must be an, an ancestor of, of the Messiah. No, he did some things you can read like in Genesis chapter 38 that weren't really all that great. You can read where he is going to come from a man named Jesse who had a number of sons, one of which was David. And David was from a little town, a little town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was not looked upon as being that great of a town during Israel's history. And a few hundred years later, Micah would write, in about 700 BC, he would say in Micah 5, Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands, little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So 700 years before the Christ ever came, Messiah, the, the, the Messiah came, Micah prophesied. Micah, a, prof, a prophet who prophesied around the same time, the same time as Isaiah prophesied, in some very difficult times, having to deal with kings like King Ahaz, who was a terribly wicked king, a good king, King Manasseh, or excuse me, King Hezekiah, and a wicked king, his son, sadly, Manasseh. And it was probably during the time of Hezekiah that this was written around 700 B.C. or so that he named one specific little town among the thousands. And by the way, there was a Bethlehem in, northern, in the northern kingdom, but this was in the southern kingdom, and he specifically named it Bethlehem of Ephrathah. People of Bethlehem were also known as the Ephrathites. We don't know exactly why that is the case, but the Ephrathites and the Bethlehemites, they were all one. It, maybe it was like a town in a county, or maybe it was just two names that meant the same thing. This was Bethlehem of Ephrathah. And when the Messiah came, he came and was born in the town of Bethlehem. You know what's amazing too is, a few hundred years before that, that there was a Mesopotamian soothsayer by the name of Balaam 
who said this in one of his prophetic utterances, which even the nations outside, the nations around Israel knew that they, this, this man was some kind of prophet. And he said, well, I can only prophesy what, what God tells me. And you, re, you recall this statement in, in um, Numbers 24, verse 17. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's very possible that the more immediate application to this was of King, of King David, who was going to be a mighty king a few hundred years later over all of Israel. But then you have the more important and remote application of this with the future. Again, this is the future coming of the Messiah who came and was born in that little town of Bethlehem after some wise men from the east saw a star. A star. What was it that Balaam said? A star shall come out of Jacob, shall come out of Judah, shall come out of Bethlehem. You see, there are even specifics that are given many specific things, even about the future, that were perfectly fulfilled as time went on. Wherever these facts are checkable, they are always shown to be true. To err is human, but the Bible writers got it all right. And what's so amazing about that is that there's so many differences among the Bible writers. I mean, there were different writers from different places. We've already mentioned a, a few of these. I mean, you had Moses who grew up in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. You had Amos who was from Tekoa. You have uh, Micah who was from Morasheth, which is, uh, if I remember correctly, another 10, 15, 20 miles outside uh, west of, of Bethlehem. You have Solomon who was the son of a great king, David. You have David who was a, a shepherd. You have People like Peter, Andrew, James, and John who were fishermen from Galilee. These were people who lived, some of them, in different time periods from different places where there, over time, would be some cultural differences. They oftentimes wrote to different audiences. I mean, imagine if we were trying to, to just the few hundred of us who are here this evening, Maybe that's a preacher's count. I'm not really sure. All, all 700 of us tonight. You know, let's say we were going to, to come together and write a book. Well, let's say there were just, maybe it's just me and the, and the cool, sweet young people we have over here tonight that, that all, and I'll just guess, we got 40 of us over here that we're going to write a book together. And yet we have all these differences, different backgrounds. We have different, you know, uh, education levels as far as maybe some of you all are in high school and some are in middle school. And, and uh, let's, say that, let's say that English is a, a first language for some of us, but maybe it's a second language for others. And let's say that we're all going to write a book on health. And we're all going to write a book on health. And um, this book is going to stand the test of time. And every single thing in this book, regardless of all of the differences among me and all of these young people, not just me and them, but even within the youth, the youth group here, that um, we're going to write a perfect book that's going to stand the test of time. I mean, are eggs good for you or bad for you? 
Because when I was a kid, I was told that you eat too many eggs, that could give you a heart attack or something like that. I forgot, right? Uh, is coffee good for you or bad for you? you know, now you're getting meddling into things, Eric. Be careful about that. Uh, we're we're going to... It's humanly impossible to write something that is to, to the degree that, that the Bible is, I mean like hundreds and hundreds of pages of material that was written by different people in different times with different backgrounds from different cultures. And the youth and I over here, we, we all live in the, in the same century. I mean, I was born in the century previous to them. I, I know that, but how difficult it would be to write a perfectly consistent book that would always be perfectly consistent about everything. And of course, we would never be able to write anything about the future because we don't know the future. And every honest, sane person, I truly believe, knows that. That we don't know the future. Fortune tellers, so-called fortune tellers, they generally get very, very, very little business. They would be rich if people thought that, and they would get a lot of business if people thought that they actually could foretell the future. And they would get a lot of visitors around the Super Bowl time, and they would have a lot of people camped out in Las Vegas where there's a lot of betting because people, people don't really know the future. There, there were different writers who lived under different law systems. I'm talking about the Mosaic Law, and when you think about the law of Christ, it was being revealed, but it began... There, as Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the last will and testament went into effect and the New Testament writers lived under that law system. And then you have different kinds of composition of the Bible. You have all sorts of differences. You have the prophets who wrote a lot of poetry. You have Moses who wrote a lot of laws and history. You have New Testament writers uh, such as Peter and Paul and others who wrote a lot of letters. Well, there's a lot of differences in letters and laws. At least I hope that you don't write love letters to your spouse the way that laws are made in Montgomery, Alabama, because that would not be very fun, I don't think, to read. And I hope that your poetry does not read like the laws that come out of Washington, D.C. or anywhere else. There's all sorts of, I should, shouldn't say all sorts of, but there are different kinds of composition. In Scripture, some of the writing, much of it is in prose, but a good portion of it, maybe to the surprise of many people, you can read in poetry, in Job, in Psalms, in Song of Solomon, and in many of the uh, prophets of the Old Testament. And they wrote for different purposes. Proverbs was written and combined together for a different purpose than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written for a different purpose, John 20, 30, and 31, than the epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians, which was written for a different purpose than Paul writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. This was written so that we might know, so that, uh, that Timothy could help the church know how to conduct themselves how Christians should conduct themselves in the house of God, in the church of the living God. There are different purposes that they had. And yet, despite all of these differences, there is absolutely incredible consistency. There's incredible consistency on their views of inspiration. Even though they were men sometimes like Peter and Paul who had differences. You know, Peter was the kind of... uh, 
kind of follower of Christ who had some differences at times with a number of people, it seemed like. I mean, could you, I can just imagine some of, the, uh, some of the differences that Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, and uh, Peter, the fisherman, you know, what kind of differences they had as they sat around listening to Jesus teach and tried to apply the teachings of Jesus in, in their lives. But, you know, what's amazing is when, when even though Paul had withstood Peter to the face, and he referred to that in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter wrote 1 Peter probably around the early to mid-60s A.D., or 2 Peter that he wrote after that, that he didn't say that, well, you know, that the Apostle Paul was ornery, and really you can't trust anything he said. He never said anything like that. None of the Bible writers ever did about anyone else, and yet their writings are, are different. Their writings oftentimes are separated by years or decades or centuries. And sometimes there were disagreements. I mean, you recall even like a, in, in Paul's missionary journey with, with uh, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, there was some differences there, right? And yet you don't read in Scripture where the Bible writer said, well, you shouldn't believe what... No, everything they wrote, they believed. You should believe that I should believe that this was actual Scripture, the Word of God. It must be true. It is true, Peter said... Again, I'm not trying to use circular reasoning here. What I'm saying is their own, all of their, the different individuals who pen Scripture, all of their views of inspiration were the same. That it is exactly right because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So much so that when Peter wrote Second Peter, he said, yes, yeah, some of the things that, that Paul wrote are more difficult and some people twist to their own destruction, but he held it on par with the rest of Scripture. There's incredible consistency of history. You know, anytime you read any other Bible writer outside of Moses writing about Genesis and Adam and Eve, anytime any other Bible writer referred to the original couple, referred to Adam by name or Eve by name, or just by the two who, whom God created, like Jesus referring to them and Matthew writing of them, of them in Matthew chapter 19, verses, verses 1 through 9 there. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 referring to Adam and Eve by name. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 where he refers to Eve actually being tempted by a serpent. I mean, that, that's something that when you think of things in the Bible that are you know, somewhat hard to believe. And I say hard to believe like that, that's not something you see every day, right? Like Balaam's donkey talking or... A, a serpent tempting, you know, uh, Eve and Eve being deceived, Paul referring to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the point. Whenever any Bible writer ever referred to any historical event that another Bible writer wrote about, every time there's always perfect consistency about that. There's never any disagreement. There's never any contradiction about the stories, the narrative material, whether it is in the book of Genesis or whether it is in the book of Daniel or whether it is in the book of Acts. Wherever, I know Acts is a historical book that has some narrative material in it, but there's always perfect consistency in it. Just like we see in the overall theme of the Bible, which is about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah, about the one who is here to save us from our sins. He was coming, He came, and the Bible says He's coming again, and let's be ready for that. So let's, let's think right, let's talk right, let's do right. 
Jesus is the theme of the Bible. There's even consistency of criticism. This is amazing because this is not, this is not normal. And what I mean is, you know, we, we, sadly, humans, oftentimes, we play favorites. You know, Jana, not that it's wrong for Jana to be my favorite because God gave her to me as my, my wife, but, you know, sometimes you'll have moms and dads who they have children and they might be tempted to overlook some of the, the mistakes that their children make. Think of a dad who's maybe a coach. Uh, he might be tempted to, to overlook the the mistakes that his son or daughter is making in this particular sport and yet be really hard on someone else's kid for making that same mistake. I'm not saying every father or mother is like that. I'm saying that might be a temptation that some have. We tend to play favorites sometimes when our God, well, our God is perfectly impartial. And God's, by the way, His impartiality is seen from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There is just this consistent teaching throughout the Bible of God's impartiality, which is seen in His consistent criticism of not just the enemies of Israel. In fact, you know, I've never counted this, and I guess I won't even... I was going to say, well, there's probably more criticism of God's own people in Scripture than the enemies of the Israelites and the Jews in Scripture. But I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that because I've never gone through and calculated all that. I know that there are plenty of, of uh, things that are said about other nations, whether it be the Canaanites who are inhabiting that land or some of the other uh, tribes that were around that area or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or, or whomever. But the thing is, isn't it amazing that the Jews preserved a book? They preserved these writings and many of the things that are said in there are are criticisms about the greatest heroes that they have. Whether it was um, whether it was King David, King David who the greatest king of Israel. I mean, he when you read the genealogy that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter one, verse one, the son of David, the son of Abraham, as great of a faithful man as Abraham was, even he he had his, his problems at times. I mean, God told him that he was going to have a son and he tried to rush this with, with Hagar. I, I don't read anywhere in Scripture that that was the right thing to do. I read where a couple of times he mentioned that his wife Sarah was, if I might say it this way, just his, just his sister. I know it's kind of weird for us to talk about you know having your wife who's your sister, but he was his half-sister at that time and that was before the law of Moses when he began making laws at that time, around 1500 B.C., of not being able to marry close relatives. But before that time, that was not a law. And he mentioned that, Abraham did, of her being his sister, never mentioning it, her being his wife, because he was afraid for his own life. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have been in those situations. I'm saying that the Bible writers reveal that even the greatest heroes of Scripture, as great of a gospel preacher as Peter was... I mean, Peter, he was a brave, courageous man. Think about what he and the other apostles did in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. He was arrested three times, arrested and jailed and threatened and beaten. And he got out and kept preaching. He got out and kept preaching. I mean, this man was amazing. And yet, I mean, I just wonder, I wonder, 
if Peter was alive and if he was very much aware of some of the the forever documented cases of his failures. You know, Peter had some failures, right? Uh, have you ever thought about Peter maybe reading some of the writings of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or um, maybe maybe the epistle that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia? Wow, Paul, did you have to write? Did you have to write that you withstood me to the face and this? I mean, did you have to say that? And, but see, there's, there's perfect impartiality with God. There's perfect impartiality with what the Bible writers wrote. There is perfect consistency of criticism. There is a consistent, um, a, a consistent, uh, as you read through the Bible, you're going to see where they lauded or they held up high the importance of rational thought and of, of uh, evidence and the importance of such, whether it whether it was one or more of the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, or whether it was when the Son of God came to earth in John chapter 5, and He said, hey, let me give you some evidence. He said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, so let me give you some witnesses. Let me give you some evidence. And so He proceeded there from John chapter 5, verse 31 and following throughout the rest of that chapter to give rational evidence for his messiahship. There is incredible consistency of moral instruction. And, 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 you know, you might say, well, Eric, you know, just one of these things just doesn't do it for me. But, you know, it's not about just one thing. I realize the overall point of tonight's lesson is to err is human, but the Bible writers got it right. And I want you just to recognize that it's, it's just fascinating and, and it should be compelling to us given all of the differences among the writers that there was this continual amazing consistency of, of the value of human life. Whether it was in patriarchal times, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Or whether it was under the law of Moses, one of the Ten Commandments was you shall not murder. Or whether it was under the law of Christ, which of course life is valuable. And thank the good Lord that more people are hearing about life being valuable from conception and always in the womb. And that is what the Bible has taught and continues to teach. There is continued um, uh, consistency of moral instruction in, 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 in Scripture, whether it's about the, the value of human life or the value of truth. You know, you're not going to read anywhere in Scripture where, where truth is not valued and that, that lying is looked at as a, as a good thing. The Bible does reveal to us that you don't always have to tell everything you know. The Bible does reveal to us that we can just keep our mouths closed sometimes and not have to say everything that we think, but the Bible never tells us that it's right to lie. And there is perfect consistency, incredible consistency of, of doctrine. Think about your New Testaments. Think about any doctrinal matter. There's perfect consistency about it all. Isn't that, uh, isn't that encouraging as we are, and I, I know in assembly this size tonight that most of us are probably Christians. It's so encouraging to me that, to know that we follow a God who is perfectly consistent. We follow His Son who is perfectly consistent. His Spirit who inspired the writers in a perfectly consistent manner. And even though Eric is not perfectly consistent, the standard is 
I mean, think about, think about just a, a, a one sample of a doctrinal matter like, like elders and one of those qualifications of, of elders being the husband of one wife. I mean, just think about and that. That's just one, if you will, not to, you know, to minimize that um, an, an elder or minimize that one qualification, but that's just one very, very small part of, of the New Testament. And yet think about this. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 that among other things, an elder is to, to be the husband of, of one wife. You can read in 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter says that as he was writing to Christians in, in Asia Minor and he was writing to a number of churches and he talked about the elders who are among you, I who am a fellow elder, Peter was an elder. You know what that means? If Peter was an, an elder, what does that mean? If Paul wrote that an elder has to ha- you know, is, is to be the husband of one wife, he wrote that to Timothy and he wrote that to Titus, and if Peter says that he was an elder, what does that imply then that Peter had? Well, that Peter had a wife. Well, do you ever read about that in the New Testament? Well, it just so happens, quote-unquote, it just so happens, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, you read that Peter had a mother-in-law. And if Peter had a mother-in-law, Peter had a wife. You know what you never read about the Apostle Paul, though? You never read about the Apostle Paul being an elder. You read about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians not having a wife or being single. So just let that sink in for just a moment. We just mentioned about, what, five, six, seven different New Testament books. 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, Titus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Seven different New Testament books on one very small detail, if you will, about an elder or a qualification of being an elder. And all of those books are in perfect harmony and consistency with one another. There is a holy harmony about it all. Friends, to err is human, yet the Bible writers got it all right. And no one knows the validity of this argument more than the skeptic. I'm not suggesting to you that the skeptic believes that the Bible is the Word of God or that the skeptic believes in the uh, conclusion of this argument, but the, the skeptic understands the validity of the argument. That is, that if the Bible writers got it all correct, then... This is the Word of God. You know how we know they understand this? Because they spend so much time and energy alleging that the Bible writers made mistakes, which this is what they claim. Like Steve Wells, probably the most well-known skeptic, maybe the most well-known skeptic, at least his website is one of the most well, uh, most frequently used skeptical website, skeptical websites on the planet where he said contradictions, among many other things he said, and false prophecies show that the Bible is not inerrant. It is time for us all to stop believing in or pretending to believe in a book that is so unworthy of belief. Dan Barker, who is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin, said people who are free of theological bias notice that the, the Bible contains hundreds of discrepancies. No honest person can pretend that it is a perfect book. Contradictions underscore the fact on balance that the Bible is not a reliable source of truth. People like... Steve Wells and Dan Barker, they, based upon how much writing, especially Steve Wells has done, 
I have one of his books in my office. It's probably about that thick. I have a couple of books that are even thicker than that combined by Dennis McKenzie who who said every analyst of the Bible should realize that the book is a veritable miasma of contradictions, inconsistencies, inaccuracies, poor science, bad math, inaccurate geography, immoralities, degenerate heroes, false prophecies, boring repetitions, childish superstitions, silly miracles, and dry as dust discourse. But contradictions remain the most obvious, the most potent, the most easily proven, and the most common problem played the book. So, Eric, are you contradicting yourself here? Are, I thought you said that the Bible writers didn't make mistakes, didn't make the kind of man-made mistakes that people err, people make when, when, they, when they live, when they write. Listen, I, I can tell you, uh, I, I'm, I'm so thankful for my colleagues at Apologetics Press, but you know what? They make mistakes when they proofread my papers. <laughs> they make mistakes. I mean, I make mistakes in writing these things, and then sometimes they even don't catch those things. You could tell I was kind of blaming them for things, and I'm really, really not. But I'm just saying, you know, when I write articles, I'll get something back from Dave and Jeff and Kyle and maybe others who proofread it. A lot of times I'll get my dad to proofread things or Janet to proofread things. And, and it's just, it's... Well, there's going to be something there that's red, that's circled, that, hey, you, you use this incorrectly, this argument's not quite valid. To err is human. But the Bible writers got it all right. Well, Eric, that's not what these skeptics are saying, and that's not... Well, just think about this from my, my point in showing you some of these slides here is so that you understand that they understand the validity of the argument. Otherwise, Dennis McKenzie wouldn't have spent so much of his life in writing about the Bible, I mean in two or three different books, probably that take up about that much room on one of my shelves, on the Bible writers supposedly making mistakes. And so here we are today where America's current state of unbelief includes 29% of people concluding that the Bible is a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man, but not the literal Word of God. And it seems to me that unbelievers have had some kind of effect on the country in which we live because we'll have individuals like Ken writing us saying, I'm not a Christian, and these Bible discrepancies, these alleged contradictions are one of the biggest factors of my still not being a Christian. I I wanted to show you this to say this. If Ken recognized the argument that we have given tonight, and that the evidence backs it up, then Ken, I would assume, based upon his writing, would come to at least have to acknowledge he may not still obey it, he may not submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ, but he would have to come to the conclusion, well, if the Bible writers did not make any mistakes, then they must have been inspired by God. We need to realize there are people out there like Michelle who've, who've written us who has written us saying, I'm an atheist, my background, I was raised in the Church of Christ, went summers to a Christian camp, got baptized at 11, I started searching different aspects of Christianity, researching it and and the Bible. It wasn't long before I came to the conclusion that the Bible wasn't inerrant. She's saying that the Bible was not free from errors, and so notice what her conclusion is. In fact, I felt pretty stupid for believing so long when I did see all the errors and inconsistencies. After I, after I didn't believe that the Bible was an errant belief and God just fell away. Well, you know what? If I thought that the Bible writers made the kind of errors that Eric makes and, and human beings who are not inspired by the Holy Spirit make, 
then no, I wouldn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I mean, if, if, I, if I told you tonight that right now, okay, this is not happening, but if I just, for the sake, for the sake of illustration, that right now that the Lord is communicating to me, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through me, and I told you that, and then I began to speak, and I told you that the, did you know that the Atlanta Braves, as I'm allegedly inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Atlanta Braves have won their last 10 baseball games? Well, if you're an Atlanta Braves fan, you know that they've, they've been on a really good winning streak lately, but they have lost a few games on that, what, West Coast road trip they had, right? And if I said, well, you know, did you know that the city, uh, Mexico City is actually in the state of Texas? not in the country of Mexico. And then I began to say things like Abraham Lincoln was the 26th president of the United States of America. What would you know about my claim that I alleged I was inspired by the Holy Spirit? What would you know about that claim? Well, that I would be lying or I was insane, uh, that I I was terribly, uh, you know, wrong in saying that that I'm not inspired, and you would know that because of the mistakes that would be made, among other things. You know, what we have seen a number of times throughout history are alleged errors that have been shown to not be errors, where the Bible writers have been exonerated. I mean, think about, the, the Bible has just laid this out many times, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I mean, even Jesus said in in John chapter 5 that Moses wrote about me. There's no denying that the Bible writers taught this, and yet it was alleged at one time that Moses could not have written it. Maybe you've heard of the uh, documentary hypothesis or the JEDP theory that was really uh, popularized by Julius Wilhausen back in the 1800s. Well, he was convinced, a lot of people don't know this, He was convinced that the Israelites were not, notice the last line, were not fixed in writing. That they didn't have a written language at the time that Moses was alive. And so he could not have written the first five books. Well, if he didn't, we got a problem. But you know what has happened over and over again? That alleged errors have been shown to not be that at all. You know, there was amazing archaeological find that was discovered by Jacques de Morgan back in the early 20th century. An eight-foot-tall uh, eight, eight tall stone that has some 282 sections of advanced law code on it. It's, I, I guess, been at the Louvre in Paris for many, many years now. There was a replica of it in Chicago that I think is still there. Well, this has proven that writing was known hundreds of years before Moses, that there were written languages. I mean, even advanced law codes, some about adultery, some about slavery, and other, and many other things. You know, people may not believe that Moses could have written the first five books of the Bible, but it's not because anymore, not because they think that human, that mankind simply did not have the ability or did not at that time have any written languages. You know, the Bible has told us a number of times, I believe it's upward closely to about 40 times of a people known as the Hittites. And yet it was alleged at one time 
by skeptics that history knew nothing about the Hittites. And so it was alleged that the Bible writers just made this up and it was some kind of mistake. And yet you probably know about the thousands of clay tablets that were found in modern-day Turkey as well as the Hittite capital that contained the society's law system now known today as the Hittite Code. If there is a Hittite Code, there was a Hittite people just as the Bible has always said that there was. You know, I, I have been so blessed in my life by various teachers and preachers I suppose maybe none more than the late brother Wayne Jackson who wrote about the amazing consistency and harmony of the book of Acts. When he said in Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 Mediterranean islands. He also mentions 95 persons, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. And his references where checkable are always... Correct. This is truly remarkable in view of the fact that the political and territorial situation of his day was in a state of almost constant change. Only inspiration can account for Luke's precision. You see, to err is human, but the Bible writers got it all right. Well, Eric, what about all of those statements by the skeptics who contend that the Bible writers got it wrong? Well, it's, it's easy to make those statements... And Lord willing, what we'll be looking at tomorrow night as we look at some principles to help us deal with some of those alleged contradictions or discrepancies or errors. And what we'll be looking at, Lord willing, on Sunday will help us deal with all of the many allegations that are made. But again, I want you to see tonight that the allegations would never be made. They wouldn't waste their time making them if they thought that that the Bible itself was not the Word of God and it wasn't the Word, or or that it, it could possibly be the Word of God because of inerrancy. You see, they they hammer the errancy idea, the errors alleged in the Bible, because they know that if the Bible writers made the kinds of mistakes they allege, then it could not be from Almighty God. And so what we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, tomorrow night and three, uh, two or three times on Sunday, I, I believe three times on Sunday, if I remember correctly. Y'all forgive me, my mind just a little bit, little bit tired this evening. But I was a little confused by the announcement. We have uh, two periods and a class period, two worship periods and a class period on Sunday. Is that right? Okay, good. Thank you. Sorry about that. I started to sweat up here thinking, wait a minute now. I mean, we know, I know at Wetumpka we do things a little differently down there. We meet from 8.30 in the morning till 11.30 and, and then we're, we're, uh, we do some other things, but we have a, a little different schedule than some churches. So I was thinking, well, what does the church here at West Huntsville have? Let me just say thank you so much for being here tonight. There is a whole lot more that we can say. What I was trying to do tonight is set up for the rest of the weekend and I hope that you will be back. But before we leave this evening, let's bow and have a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for the time together. Thank you for allowing us to meditate on really the most important things of life as we think about uh, what undergirds, what serves as a foundation of our faith. Father, we are so thankful for the hope that you give us, for the real hope of heaven and eternal life, and we know that it rests upon the facts of your existence and the Bible being your word and Jesus Christ being your 
Son and our Savior who rose from the dead, defeating death and is at the right hand of you this very hour as we look to Him as our King, as our guide. And Father, we pray that you would be with us as we leave this place tonight and for uh, Christians to continue to walk in the light and serve you faithfully and for any who are outside of the body of Christ that they will continue to examine the evidence and make a decision based upon what's right and what's true and what's good and what's best for us now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.